Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, after my COVID-addled brain enabled me to correctly guess the fight in the fight game pretty much instantly last week, uh, I spent the week trying to use my newfound intellectual powers. I sought an invite to Davos to explain to world leaders the way forward. I... <laughs> doubled down on my increasingly desperate efforts to write my book, and of course I bought a lottery ticket. Um, unfortunately, you knew an unfortunately was coming, didn't you? Yeah. But uh, yes, I recommended to the Davos meeting that they invest in Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> I forgot to save the file with my book in it, and my lottery guess was so bad, I actually owed them money. <laughs> so I gave myself another test, and sure enough, it was negative. The COVID has left my system, Eric, and I am once again, a moron. <laughs> well, uh, that, that sucks that the superpower has a shelf life. Uh, you know, if I'm being honest, I got kind of jealous of your COVID super strength <laughs> after last week's podcast. I started running up to people on the street asking them, do you have COVID? Have you recently been exposed to someone with COVID? <laughs> and if yes... I asked them to breathe all over me. Uh, mm. Even I found one old man with a runny nose, and I just figured, you know, decent chance he's positive. Paid him 20 bucks to lick my face. I nah. mean, you know, why should you get all the mental superpowers, Kieran? Mm. It seems seems feeling like garbage for a week or two. That's a small price to pay for the opportunity to pull Muhammad Ali versus Cleveland Williams out of one's ass and bathe <laughs> in the glory that comes with it. Although I guess now, hearing your tales of woe, it actually seems to have been a curse for you. You, you reached this highest of highs, and yeah. now you're going to spend the rest of your days fruitlessly chasing that feeling. Yeah, I, I was actually waiting for you to be like, oh, you're not a moron, but apparently I'm going to have to wait a little bit longer for that reassurance. <laughs> no, listen, I, I did say uh, the words, if I'm being honest. So, you know, uh, yes. I couldn't yes. go. I couldn't very well say that you're not if a moron. doing a lot of work in that, in that clause. <laughs> I guess. Oh, well. <laughs> oh well <laughs> um coming up on the podcast our friend dan rayfield joins us to go over the latest news in the boxing world uh we look ahead to next week's fights including a double bill featuring amando serrano and alicia Baumgartner. eric reveals his top five last round knockouts and attempts to match my one and done performance on the fight game uh but first to london where on saturday night anthony yard put up a really good effort against arta Baturbiev before the montreal-based russian broke through in the eighth round to move to 19-0 with 19 ko's yeah i'd say yard uh, didn't just put up a, a really good effort I, I he put up the best effort he was capable of and it simply wasn't mm. enough against this opponent uh, but it was a joy watching him try this was a tremendously entertaining high impact fight with plenty of close tough to score rounds and momentum swings Yard was on his toes early. Uh, Betterbiev was looking to time him and counter him and close the distance and land heavy punches. Yard's eyes were swelling up by the fourth, but he kept coming and may have hurt Betterbiev with a right hand during a thrilling fifth round. Yard was cut under the right eye, then Betterbiev got a cut over his left eye in the sixth. Yard got a second wind and had good moments in the sixth and seventh, the seventh being maybe the best round of the fight. Uh, through seven, two of the three judges had Yard narrowly ahead in the fight. But all the while, Betterbiev's punches, short and powerful, chipped away at Yard's defenses until, in the eighth round, a right hand landed on the point of the chin and had Yard in trouble, and another chopping right hand sent him down to his knees. Yard made it to his feet, just barely, but his body language wasn't great, and 
better be have barely had the chance to start a follow-up assault before Yard's trainer, Tunde Ajayi, climbed onto the ring apron and called for the fight to be halted, which it was at 2.01 of the round. With the loss, Yard falls to 23-3 and with 22 KOs, while, as you mentioned, better be have maintains his perfect record at 19-0, all 19 wins by knockout. Kieran, what did you make of the fight? How did you have it scored at the time of the stoppage? And the topic on everyone's mind, who would you pick right now between Better Biev and Dmitry Bivol? Well, it was a fantastic fight, wasn't it? I mean, it was one of those fights that showcased real skill, but also extraordinary strength and toughness in both guys. Uh, yeah, look, I, I thought after round three or four that Yard was crumbling. It looked as if his early technique was deserting him, that he was starting to fade under the strength of the Better Biev onslaught. But you mentioned this, you know, during a Better Biev assault in the fifth, he fired that counter right hand that, that, seemed to stun Berdabiev. And apart from buying him some extra time, as Berdabiev recovered from that, it also looked to me like that gave Yard some self-belief again. Like, I can I can do this. I can get myself back into this fight. And and he really started taking it to Berdabiev after that. But, of course, it came, came ultimately at a cost because it was the right thing to do in terms of trying to win the fight, but it also gave Berdabiev more openings to respond. And that left hook of Berdabiev in particular just kept landing and landing, chipping away at the yard chin till it finally gave way. Um, I was very impressed with yard um, yeah. with his skill and strength and resilience and determination. I, I feel for him, honestly, um, there have been eras when the light heavyweight division was far less top heavy than it is now. And when lesser skilled boxers and him have won titles, um, there isn't much, much justice to the fact that the likes of JB Williamson can call themselves former light heavyweight world titleists. And there's a decent chance that yard will never be able to do that. Um, that said, he did his reputation only good, and he'll surely get another opportunity. Um, his, his reputation has really, I think, increased uh, after Saturday night. The only question being how much he su- how much damage he suffered, because Bedebiev has proven himself to be a career ender. Um, I was a little surprised at the scores, but I wasn't even remotely outraged by them. At the end, two judges had Yard up by a point, one had Bedebiev up by a point. Um, it reminded me a little bit of Golovkin-Jacobs in that Jacobs' punches in that fight were bigger and more eye-catching, but Golovkin kept chipping away with shorter, less obvious, but more damaging shots all the way through. And and I wanted, I think there was a bit of that going on as well on Saturday night. I had it, I think, wider than most people had it in that after seven, I had it 68-65 better BF, but okay. there were several very swingy rounds in there. And I could totally see any of the official scores. I could see 67, 66 in either direction. Um, as for the fight with Bivol, the only thing that I feel mildly confident in saying is I think Bivol would probably be ahead on points when the fight ends. The only question is when and how that ending comes. Mm. Will it be at the end of 12 completed rounds and Bivol gets a decision? Or does better BF scorer come from behind KO? Or possibly even does, does, does Bivol get the KO? I actually think Bivol might be a bit of a nightmare for Better Biev. I, I think he has the skill to outbox him, the size to keep him at range, and, and the strength to make him think twice about really stepping into some of his power punches. But you'd also be crazy to bet against Better Biev because right. there's probably nobody in boxing right now who is as dangerous and as capable of scoring a KO from, from first bell to last. Uh, what about you? Yeah, so, you know, I saw a lot of takes out there uh, around the end of the fight that Better Biev looks like he's lost a step and uh, people saying that this fight tells him that Bivol beats him. 
I don't know about that. I mean, Better Beav has had rocky stretches in fights before. His defense yeah. has never been great. Uh, you know, he's, he's always been kind of easy to hit, at least with one punch at a time. And for those willing to pay the price for throwing punches at him, right. um, I feel like the Joe Smith wipeout made it easy to forget how temporarily vulnerable Better Beav can look. And so, yes, did he mm-hmm. look worse in this fight than he did against Joe Smith? Yeah, but that was just a quick and perfect destruction. To me, this was mostly the same Better Beav we've always seen, uh, albeit maybe with, with slightly less steady-looking legs at times in this fight against Yard. It was a strange fight in that it was exciting, lots of two-way action. It was undoubtedly close. I personally had better be up four to three through seven. Mm -hmm. And Yard was fighting the fight of his life. And yet I never really had much of a doubt that better BF was going to knock him out. Um, yeah. You know, like, like yard yard definitely exceeded my expectations by a little bit. Better BF just kind of met my expectations, which are fairly ridiculously high every time he fights, but it just seemed the whole time. Like he was going to break through and take yard out eventually. And once he started attacking the body hard at the end of the seventh, while yard was covering yeah. up in the corner, that to me looked like the beginning of the end. Um, now, yeah, obviously, Bivol is far better than Yard and a far tougher style to fight. I see it as a real toss-up between different styles, you know, and an almost pure boxer, albeit one with half-decent power, against a pressure-fighting puncher who also has half-decent boxing skills. There are some similarities, maybe, between Better Biev and Canelo that can make you think, oh yeah, mm. Bivol outboxes this guy too, but... Better Biev throws more punches than Canelo does. He applies more pressure, and he's bigger and stronger. It's a total pick'em fight to me, um, and it's for all the marbles at 175. It really has to happen. I think if it happens this year, I actually probably slightly lean toward Better Biev to get to Bivol and pull it out the way he did against Gvozdik. But I don't know. It's basically 50-50. I'm dying to see it, and. I'd rather see them against each other and then the winner gets a mega payday versus Canelo than to see Canelo yeah. versus one of them next. Uh, so, yeah, that's right. You know, for two, like two or three years, I was screaming <laughs> Canelo versus Better Biev is the best fight that can be made in all of boxing. And now here I am saying if Canelo Better Biev is on the table, uh, my position is it can wait. I want Better Biev Bivol first. Uh, you know, you got to be willing to pivot sometimes, Kieran. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're right about how the um, the Joe Smith fight was it was almost kind of an outlier, really, if you look at Better Biev's resume, that not that many of his wins, despite the fact he has that perfect KO record, that he doesn't normally go in there and blast people out. He, he just chips, he doesn't normally actually have one-punch KO power. He just right. chips away so hard and, and just takes such chunks out of guys' chins that, that eventually just one punch comes along and they have nothing left. And, and it looked like that was a lot of, what happened with yard really the just the accumulation of the little touches here and there little touches um you know better be (laughs) versions of little touches right just took so much out of his chin that by the end he was he was just done that effort to stay in the fight just ultimately proved to be his undoing and and that's the dilemma for a better be opponent isn't it it's like do i go in there and try to fight him and try to win it because i can hit him and he can be dropped but in the process i give him openings to get me out of there earlier or do I try and box and probably won't win it, and then he'll get me out of there later? Either way, he gets me out of there. It's right. a, it's a, a, he's a very, very difficult guy to fight. Yeah, and, and you figure 
you know, Bevel comes in with the plan of I am going to box the most disciplined fight of my life. And if I do that, then uh, then this guy's made for me. But it's just it's so much easier said than done. Indeed. All right, let's look ahead. Uh, not a lot of big fights next week, but there are a couple of cards worth mentioning. Uh, next Friday in Glendale, Arizona, Emmanuel Navarrete steps up to 130 pounds to take on Liam Wilson on ESPN. And the following day on DAZN, Amanda Serrano returns to the ring to take on Erica Cruz. And Alicia Baumgartner, in her first fight since dethroning Michaela Mayer, meets Alem Mekaled for the undisputed junior lightweight title. Eric, what floats your boat there? So I, I said when Navarrete Wilson was announced after Navarrete Oscar Valdez fell through that it looked like a total mismatch on paper, that, that Wilson has nothing on his resume to suggest he should be sharing a ring with Navarrete. I stand by that. Uh, you know, sometimes a guy getting the chance of a lifetime brings his A-plus game, and, and Navarrete can have the occasional flat performance. So maybe it's a little bit competitive looking, but still, uh, this this matchup does nothing for me. There are some good fights and fighters on the undercard, though. Uh, Arnold Barboza Jr. versus Jose Pedraza is a solid crossroads fight. Xavier Martinez is on the show. Heavyweight prospect Richard Torres Jr. is in action. Emiliano Vargas is in a four-rounder. But it's the Saturday DAZN card that's the more interesting show of the two to me, given the run that women's boxing is on and how elite the two headliners are. Um, Katie Taylor fans are probably sick of hearing me say this, but... I'll say it one more time. I thought Serrano beat her. Uh, plus, Serrano is the smaller fighter. So I certainly have Serrano ahead of her pound for pound. Um, for me, it's it's a debate between Serrano and Clarissa Shields for the number mm-hmm. one pound for pound spot. I, I just love watching Serrano box. She has that Roy Jones full toolbox. And, um, you know, Erica Cruz is a solid fighter. It's kind of like Yard against Betterbiev. She's she's good, but she probably has zero chance of winning. Um, and, and then Baumgartner... She's somewhere in the women's pound for pound top 10 now. This is a great opportunity for her at MSG to add to her growing star power. Uh, Plus, Richardson Hitchens is on the undercard against a fellow undefeated fighter. It's a solid weekend of fights ahead of us. It just lacks a singular must-see matchup where you don't know who to favor going in. But a very solid boxing weekend before the Showtime cards start rolling out again. All right, let's bring in this week's guest. And we're very happy to welcome back an old friend of the podcast. He is best known for his work as a sports writer for the Press and Sun Bulletin in Binghamton, New York, but he also enjoyed a couple of under-the-radar stints covering boxing for USA Today and ESPN, and now writes the Fight Freaks Unite newsletter. It is, of course, the one and only Dan Rayfield. Dan, welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Guys, it's a pleasure to be on with you, as always. Karen, what an amazing, amazing introduction. <laughs> best known for my work at the Press and Sun Bulletin is just brilliant. <laughs> and and by the way i'll, I'll throw in a, a credit that kieran didn't mention there that uh that you are now stepping on our turf you're a podcaster as well i'm a, I'm a regular listener to big fight weekend with you and tj reeves so i say to our listeners if you only have time for one boxing podcast of course make it ours but if you have time for a second one i recommend checking out dan and tj i look at it as not a competition it's just uh, we're adding to the party we have a good time you guys do your thing you do a great job and we try to do our thing and uh, have fun doing it. TJ lets me curse a little bit, so I get, uh, <laughs> I get uh, that, 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 that makes me get through it every week. I'll try not to curse with you guys. Eh, it's, it's a premium cable network. Exactly. Yeah. Do what you want, man. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, well, you, you may come out with some curses here, Dan, uh, right off the bat, because um, so I have to admit, I, I did you dirty last time you were on the podcast. Uh, I asked you a very evil question in which your house was hypothetically on fire and you could only save three pieces of your memorabilia. It was a mean, mean question for me to ask, but I loved every second of it. So I'm going to torture you. <laughs> and you're not you're not going to get over it today because I'm going to torture you once again. All right, here we go. Last time, that was like the last question. So I was like in a good mood as we did the rest of the time. <laughs> now you ask me as the first question. It might That's get right. things off to a rocky start. It, it yeah. may. I'm, will, I'm willing to take that risk uh, to entertain the listeners. So uh, so one of your most prized possessions is the ring-worn Arturo Gatti robe. It's a fine piece of clothing. But let's say a robber comes into your house and he says, Raphael, your Gatti robe or the fleece? You got to give me one or the other and I'll leave peacefully. Which is it, Dan, the robe or the fleece? That's pretty fucked up. <laughs> I had a, good. The curses are flying. All right. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I know that people, people love the fleece a lot more than I do. I just got known because I wore it to a lot of fights. And when I travel, because it was sort of like lightweight and it wasn't like right. bulky and it was comfortable and I had it for a while and whatever. So I think that's actually a much easier question than the last one. Okay. You've given up the fleece. I'm not giving up the Gaddy rope. All right. And, and you could always buy a replacement fleece and only you would know that it's not the, the original fleece. Although, I mean, look, let's face it. I would know it in my heart. I would know it. Right. You would know. And the original fleece is probably headed for hanging in Canastota someday. So it, it's worth something. <laughs> now, somebody actually, I'm trying to remember who said that. I was doing uh, something or other and somebody actually asked me the same thing. They, I, I forget where I was, where I was doing it. Somebody else had it, invited me to come on their, uh, their show and, actually asked me if, if 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 i ever were to be inducted into the hall of fame would i would i wear the would i rock the fleece and my answer was number one it would be the hugest honor of your life uh, from a professional point of view to be elected and then inducted into the hall of fame and b yeah shit, yeah i'm wearing the fleece i don't care what doing. <laughs> excellent <laughs> uh, right. that, was, that wasn't too bad right all right a little, little no, fun to kick things off solid. yeah Awesome. Yeah, but we still have a few questions to go, so let's right. see. Right. Um, <laughs> the Gaddy robe is pretty sweet. Yes. It's not really a robe. Yeah. It's, the, uh, it's, the, it's the jacket with the satin, and it's signed, and it's, it's gorgeous. That is pretty amazing. It's from, it's from his loss to Oscar De La Hoya, incidentally. Right. So let's actually get serious and focus on some fights here and uh, get your uh, reporting on where various fights that have been proposed presently stand. So we've recently had Benavidez plan and Sue Harrison confirmed. Looks as if Tank Davis and Ryan Garcia is pretty much good to go for April 15th in Las Vegas on Showtime pay-per-view. Anything standing in the way of that now, as far as you know, Dan? Are there any concerns about Tank's legal issues? Well, Tank's legal issues, obviously, I don't know how you can't be concerned about it. Now, I've, I've been, every time I've written anything about the prospect of that fight and, and the timing, which is supposed to be April 15th, I always have like a sentence in there or a comment like, and by the way, it's all uh, dependent upon whether or not he is a tank that is in a position to go through and have the fight. Like, is he available for the fight is the word I used. So it seems like on both sides that no one's really concerned. And they keep saying like, you know, oh, it, you know, you talk to me like, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. It's handled. And I'm like, okay, call me a worry board. But yeah, I am worried about it because I do what anybody can do. And which is go on the Baltimore court website and I have the case number and you look up the case number and it's still scheduled. 
and the case is supposed to begin. I believe it was February the 16th. And until I don't see that on the schedule, yeah, I'm concerned because the judge doesn't care if to them, it's a widget. It's, it's whatever case, it's just another case in the pipeline, whether it's a famous athlete preparing for a big event, or it's just a, you know, a, a normal person that's not in the public spotlight, they're going through and doing um, their job as a, as a court judge and a jury and the whole thing. So I don't know how anybody could say they're not concerned about it. Now, maybe there is a uh, agreement where whatever happens, because remember, this is not like he's not charged with like crazy amounts of felonies. It's not, you know, I'm not going to diminish it, but it's not like, you know, a murder charge or something like that. So it made me think back and I said this to somebody else. This was the example that I thought of. Remember when Floyd Mayweather was in a similar situation where it was a domestic case in Las Vegas and he was getting ready to fight Miguel Cotto and the judge in the case, uh, they had worked on a plea agreement that he was going to serve time uh, in the uh, in, in jail in, in Nevada, but they allowed him to report at a date that came after the, the Cotto fight. So he was uh, went through with the plea agreement, convicted of the, the lesser charge, went through with the fight, made the big payday, had a huge uh, economic impact for Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is. And then after the fight, you know, a couple of weeks later, he was uh, to report to the Clark County jail. So I could see theoretically a scenario where if in fact tank either is convicted, if they go through the trial or B, they have a plea agreement that includes jail time that he could be permitted to do exactly the scenario that I just said. And the reason why I say it the way I said it was because his team and the prosecutors have already went to the judge with a plea agreement that they agreed on. But when that plea agreement did not include any jail time, the judge threw it out and would not accept it because she, she I think it was a female judge who said, uh, this this uh, plea agreement is not uh, does not include jail time, so therefore it's not good enough. So uh, it was clear that it was serious enough from in the mind of that judge that there should be at least some jail time. How much, you know, I'm not a lawyer or a judge, whatever. So uh, am I concerned about it? Yeah, you have to be. But that said, assuming that the lack of concern means something in terms of just getting the paperwork done, by all accounts, uh, by both sides, uh, Golden Boy, you know, being the Ryan Garcia side, has said publicly that they have the paperwork, which they were waiting on. And they're the ones that were being extended the offer officially. And they've been going through the paperwork. And now they just and this is normal, by the way, this is not a negative. And this would be like for any boxing contract or frankly, any contract that you would do as a, as a normal citizen. You look through your agreement, you make your comments, you know, your lawyer makes their comments, send it back. And just to make sure everything is clarified and everything is uh, dotted in the right spot and the T's crossed in the right spot. So that's where they're at now, the the ultimate of making the sausage. So uh, I suspect in the next week or so, that sausage should be ready to eat. Um, how about uh, Usyk Fury? Is that very far along? That's an interesting one, Kieran. I was watching uh, the broadcast from the UK uh, on Saturday uh, during the course of the broadcast for the Arthur Better Biev and in uh, his his oh, what a tremendous fight with Anthony Yard. Anyway, I thought that because Tyson Fury was there, that we might see some kind of interview with him or have an update from the broadcast about where the status was of that particular fight. But unfortunately, it's really uh, status as I can tell, as it's been for the last few weeks. You know, when I've talked to different folks involved, which is, you know, by all accounts, they just don't have an exact date. They don't. And part of that is because they need an, they need a specific venue. I think that they think that they need to find a place where the fight. Uh, and now I guess a possible wrench in that situation was, you know, you hear talk about, you know, 
the Francis Naganu team coming out of uh, UFC contacting the Fury team about doing some kind of fight. And if you're Tyson Fury, you know, who can say every day that he doesn't care about the money, which really means I only care about the money. Uh, <laughs> that's a much, much easier fight for a huge amount of money. So he may be looking at that. I mean, there's a, I don't know. They were talking about doing this fight guys in like March, April. I mean, honestly, here we are, you know, closing in near the end of January. Uh, that fight's not happening in March, obviously. Mm. I mean, it's probably not too, not too late to make it, make it so for April, but, but you're starting to push it on that too, only because it's the magnitude of the event. Interesting. So, do you do you do you have a suspicion that it, it might not? I mean, what's your gut telling you here? I, I assumed it was going to happen. It's just a case of, of figuring things out. Is your? It sounds like your gut is suggesting that yeah, maybe who knows? Is it the fact that Fury is such a mercurial fellow? It's difficult to know exactly what he wants to do. Well, you you guys have known me for a very long time, and I'm I'm uh, very pessimistic when it comes to uh, the all the glory news of like the big fights happening. I've been burned too many times, so you. You can talk about it all you want. You can uh, tell me how much this fight's going to happen, how there's no impediments to making it happen. But until I hear that it's done or I see a press release or a press conference or, you know, somebody goes on the record, say we're signed, sealed and delivered, I just don't believe it. And this is an enormous fight. Uh, and so they're way, they're not even to the point of the Gervonta Davis and, and Ryan Garcia fight where they're actually, you know, doing the, the paperwork because they don't know where it's going to be or what the, what the actual money is, if there's a site fee, that sort of thing. So, you know, I hope it happens. I don't see why it shouldn't happen. There's no impediments in terms of mandatories. Both sides have claimed they want to do the fight. There's no broadcast issues in terms of uh, conflict there. There's no promotional issues. Uh, the two sides get along in terms of like, you know, top rank and, and the uh, and the management for, for Usyk. Uh, so yeah, by all, by all reasons, it should happen, but it's boxing, man. And it's Tyson Fury. So you just, you know, we, we all are in uh, Tyson's world. And I guess, uh, you know, he plays to his own time frame and his own drummer. And, you know, it's good to be the king, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, obviously talking about fights that we wanted to get made, we thought we're going to get made and, and haven't done yet. Uh, we had Buzanis on a couple of weeks ago. He said that he felt if Errol Spence does fight Keith Thurman at 154 pounds, then that's it for Spence and, and Crawford at 147. If, if Crawford wants that fight, he's got to go up to 54 is Spence Thurman looking like a thing? And where's your optimism meter for an eventual Spence Crawford at this point? Well, I do think that that uh, I do think that uh, Spence and Thurman will happen. It's just a matter of uh, you know, is it really going to be at 154? That would really that would irritate me to death because the reason why the fight was being put together in the first place, in my mind, was because the WBC had made Errol Spence the mandatory challenger. The WBA, which has been a disaster in terms of dealing with its welterweight extraneous titles, uh, approved it when they went against their policy by doing so because they had uh, were supposed to order the fight with Stan Yonis, uh two fights ago. They let it go, so uh, thinking that the Crawford fight would happen, and they got burned there. So I do think that if he goes to 54 to fight uh, Thurman, which, again, it, Spence and Thurman, it's not like in and of itself it's a bad fight or anything like that, but... When, when you do it at 54 at the expense of the prospect of a Crawford fight, it stinks. So yeah. the fight in the ring doesn't stink. It's just a disappointing turn of events that they would go that route. But I, I tend to agree with uh, Ennis that if, if, in fact, that fight does happen, which it's supposed to happen sometime this spring, it's definitely something that's uh, on everybody's mind and that they're working towards. But it would probably mean that if there is a Crawford fight, it would not be at 47 when the reality is 
one of the great allures of seeing Errol Spence fight Terrence Crawford is for the ultimate prize in that weight class, which is who's the king of the welterweights, where we've both been for the last several years, beating everybody that they put in front of us. We have all the belts, make it for the undisputed. Uh, there has never been an undisputed champion, uh, you know, in the so-called four belt era at that weight division. So it would be a real bummer if it doesn't happen. And as far as if it's going to happen, I think they're farther away now than they've been for a long time because, you know, they got supposedly very close for uh, at the end of last year, early this year. It didn't happen for different reasons. Uh, Errol is looking to fight uh, Thurman. Terrence Crawford had his victory over uh, David Evanesian. He's not going to sit around and wait. Uh, for that other fight to take place. So, you know, I don't know if people looked at the internet, but Oscar De La Hoya posted a photo of Terrence visiting uh, himself and uh, Eric Gomez in the Golden Boy offices in Los Angeles. And they're uh, presenting some type of uh, opportunity for me as a free agent. Bernard Hopkins was on the DAZN broadcast speaking about it also. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to try not to throw up here, but they were talking about maybe doing a fight uh, between him, between Crawford and Alexis Rocha, who was the main event on that DAZN card, who looked pretty good against an unknown uh, lightweight moving up, taking a fight on like, you know, a, ten, uh, a week's notice. I mean, anybody's can look good in that position. Uh, Alexis Rocha against, Ter against Terrence Crawford. No offense to, to Rocha. He's a nice fighter and fun to watch and all, but I mean, let's be honest, that's that's a freaking mismatch. So, you know, we're, we're far away from that. Now, now we're getting to the part of the podcast where you're pissing me off. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. We're going we're, we're gonna to try a dramatic shift then from from uh, pessimism to to optimism. Uh, there, you, there are only positive answers to this question, Dan, because, yeah, last year ended on kind of a down note with Crawford Spence falling through and all that. But, you know. There is some promise for 2023 with some of the matchups that, that we've been talking about here. What is your favorite piece of good news that you've heard over the past couple of months? What are, what are you most excited about? What should the fight freaks be most excited about? Well, I, I am excited, Eric, about some of the fights that we think are happening, but I'm going to temper that excitement until they're signed. But if Davison and uh, Garcia is signed, that's a great matchup. And I, I love the fact that these are guys who are willing to, put it on the line to fight each other. It's not even for a world title. It's just a good old fashioned fight that people want to see uh, two guys who have a certain level of star power. Uh, they have different audiences that are their big fans. And if you put them together, it makes it even bigger. If you have two fighters and they draw from the same fan base, it can be a big fight, but it only has a certain level it can achieve. If you have two guys with completely different fan bases and their fan bases come together, it can blow it up into a huge fight. Uh, and I think that has a chance to be like a, crossover kind of mainstream sort of fight um i, I also i'm again i'm excited about the prospect of uh in a way moving up to fight stephen fulton a fight that again not signed but seems like there's no impediments fulton has been very demanding of the fight to his team you know in a way has said a thousand times both before he unified all the titles at bantamweight and immediately afterwards that his goal was to uh you know become undisputed at bantamweight and move up so i do think that 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 has got a, a very good chance to happen again um, I've said this a thousand times when the two athletes want to fight, there's usually not a whole lot that can prevent it from happening. You know, Ryan Garcia, in my mind, basically willed as, even if it, you know, as far as we've gotten in terms of that fight happening, he's willed it to happen. I mean, obviously tank had to go along with it because he's the other half of the equation. So, you know, had to uh, tip of the hat to him also, but those that's good news. When, when, when top five, top, quality fighters and all four of those guys garcia uh, uh tank davis in a way and stephen fulton all outstanding fighters all you know in the on the younger end of their careers in terms of mileage and age and everything and 
and entertainment value. I mean, that's a good thing. So that those are things I'm happy. I'm happy about. When I mentioned my tip of the cap, I don't know if they can see it, but I did opt for my oh, yeah, boxing baseball that today. Yeah, <clears throat> yes, I assume that was honor, a, honor the team. You know, surely, surely acquired at a boxing writers' dinner somewhere along the line, which is where I got a lot of my uh, various this hats is, and swag. This is true, and uh, and uh, don't call me Shirley. <laughs> quick quick follow up on davis garcia just because you talked about their separate fan bases pay-per-view buys if i set the over under at six hundred fifty thousand for that fight are you going over or under that that's actually a great number that's why you should be in the uh, i know you have a background <laughs> in, uh, in gambling and all right, that sort of thing. right that's a tough one as far as over under i mean i i i don't believe when i see like okay uh, all respect to our good pal oscar De La Hoya was touting, oh, it's going to do two and a half million. No, it's not. <laughs> no. no, it's not. Under. Very under. under. Very under. Six, I'll put it like this in terms of 650. It is achievable with the right promotion. If, they, if, all, if it hits in the right way, uh, there's no doubt that it can, uh, it's a possibility to, to go that route. I mean, like 650,000 is a big number in this day and age of pay-per-view. I mean, the biggest fight that we've had in pay-per-view in the last many, many years I guess would have been the rematch between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, which, and I have said this uh, to many people in the business, I wrote about this to me in my entire career of writing about boxing, that was probably the best promotion I've ever seen because you had the tonnage of Fox. You had the tonnage of ESPN. You had two larger than life personalities who embraced the promotional aspect of it. Not just one guy that was talking. You had just a classic. It was the heavyweight championship legit i mean and what made me think about that was as i was at the fight in las vegas and i remember uh, being in the press room one day and looking up and seeing on the they had these two big screen tvs that were on either side of the dais where they would have uh different uh, press availabilities and all and they had on one side espn on showing uh footage and and, and preview material about the fight and if you turn to the other side of the room and looked at the other tv it was Fox or Fox Sports One, and they were doing the same thing. And with massive national publicity, a huge amount of media that turned out for that fight, um, British and American, I mean, just phenomenal promotion, as good as it gets. And it, it did like 850. Piracy is a huge part of it. It was not for a lack of interest in the fight. Now here we are several years later. And again, no knock on Garcia or, or, or uh, Tank Davis, both uh, good personalities, I guess. Not Tank, maybe not at that level of Garcia. Uh, not heavyweights, not a world title. Um, yes, they have their, their fan bases. So it will, I don't even think it could get to the level of a fury and a wilder in terms of their rematch. So again, the, the goalposts and the goals in this pay-per-view industry, I think for everybody in their mindset that goes back to say the heyday of when Showtime pay-per-views or HBO pay-per-views were a thing, uh, and could do humongous, humongous numbers have to understand that it's just not the same anymore with, with streaming and all the uh, piracy and, and a lot of different factors that, you know, 650, if it did that, would still be viewed, I believe, as a huge success. And keep in mind also, at 650, if it got to that level, everybody probably makes a ton of money, including the promoters. When the, when the Fury and the Wilder fight happened, they had to pay the two heavyweights so much money that right. it really did not turn out to be the most profitable event in the world. But obviously, as good of those, as uh, Tank and Ryan are, they're not at the level where they're making, you know, $25 million for the fight. So it has a chance uh, for everybody to be successful on the on the financial end. But yeah, I would I would. Honestly, I would probably take the under, but that doesn't mean it's not a big fight. That segues into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is your kind of thoughts on, on the current 
boxing business model and specifically the broadcasting slash streaming model you know the zone launched made a huge play about the fact that you know, none of it was ever going to be on, on pay-per-view they're now pushing their biggest fights onto onto pay-per-view I, I think our boss Steven Espinosa would admit that Showtime has far too many pay-per-views obviously Showtime would prefer not to have pay-per-views you know when Showtime and HBO were dominating the sport fans complained they had to spend too much to watch the sport and now it feels like if anything they're having to spend out more um is any of this sustainable do you think does something have to give or is this just it's just boxing and we're just going to keep on muddling along in this sort of way where where some events aren't profitable and and then some are i think what you just said is accurate uh there's always things that go in cycles uh i do think there's too much pay-per-view right now uh but in terms of what you mentioned about like that how like even steve espinoza at showtime would probably admit there's too much pay-per-view i think you're right about that you know here's the point of view say take a fight a, a really good fight like they have uh the uh, Caleb Plant and David Benavides fight scheduled now for their schedule for March on pay-per-view. It's a really good matchup. Nobody's going to dispute that. It's an interesting fight. It's uh, it, it's uh, bad blood between these two guys. They're both, you know, at the top of their weight class, uh, you know, behind Canelo Alvarez. They both have a good style that meshes well, I think. You got the brawler and Benavides, the, the more of a, more of a boxer, but with a nasty shriek and Caleb plant. I mean, it just, it shapes up like a nice promotion and a, and a pretty damn good fight. I think, and I know this cause I asked Steve once, uh, I know we'd rather have that fight on regular showtime, not pay-per-view. So, but, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate and tell you why it's on pay-per-view because Espinoza, and this would go for any fight is faced with this situation because of the money that the two fighters command. I believe that that fight in terms of what their guaranteed pay is, is probably somewhere between six and $7 million combined for the, for the fight. So if you're Steve, you're, you're stuck with this scenario. Do I go into my Showtime budget and spend somewhere in that neighborhood to do the fight on regular Showtime? Because keep in mind, there's other revenue within the fight, the international, the gate, whatever other you know sponsors, things along those lines. But still, I'm going to have to spend a lot of money out of my Showtime budget to put on arguably or inarguably a really attractive fight. Or do I let do I go talk to my people at PBC and, and they go the, the pay-per-view route with that? I still am going to get some money back on the pay-per-view because we're going to produce it, distribute it, market it, all that stuff. But I haven't had to spend that giant chunk of money. I can then use that money to spread it around and make other events for Showtime Championship Boxing and get more events, maybe not at the level of the Caleb Plant and David Benavides fight, but still I'm going to have a lot of material to go forward and do the fights besides just that match. So that's the decision that they have to make. And he, they obviously made the decision better to spend uh, that money in doing other events than just on one event. And I totally understand that. So that's the reason why it's on pay-per-view. I suggest that with all due respect that those two fighters for that match are, would be getting overpaid in my estimation, because they're not proven draws in terms of what they can sell or, or what they can draw, but that's you know good for them if they can get it. I don't begrudge the fighters for getting the money, but it means that that fight lands on pay-per-view. And I just don't think it's going to do a big number, even if it's going to be a really good fight. All right. All right. My, my last question for you in this, uh, this chat, Dan, uh, is, is about the prospects. I, I know you uh, name a prospect of the year every year. You get fired up for that. Who would you say, let, let's just, I was going to ask maybe one or two, but let's try and just single out one. Who's the one up and comer out there right now, not at the contender level yet, that you're telling everyone you know to tune in the next time this guy or or this lady is on TV. Well, I mean, there's a difference, I guess. There, who's the the prospect of the year, or who's like, say, the most the uh, the best young fighter of, the, of terms of entertainment value? 
So, I mean, I picked for the 2022, my prospect of the year uh, that I wrote about was Keyshawn Davis, the lightweight from top rank, who based on that is number one on my list. I did a top 15. My number two guy was the heavyweight Jared Anderson, also with top rank, but I had him as my prospect of the year in 2021. So those are two guys to me that are, that are must-see guys, particularly the heavyweight Jared Anderson, just because of the excitement and the knockout power and uh, that sort of thing. But they're both extremely talented fighters, but there's other fighters besides that. Um, so I can give you a couple that I, that I, that are on that list, but I also very much enjoy watching. Sure. Um, so there's a young fighter from the UK who's uh, seven and zero with six knockouts. I ranked him number nine on my list. He's absolutely electrifying. I've watched him now probably about of his seven fights. I've seen probably four or five of them. Uh, he fights uh, for the promoter boxer. He's aligned now with sky sports in the UK, but he's had a couple of fights that have shown up on uh, American availability, whether they were available for a, nominal pay-per-view on fight as part of other cards his pro debut was on a card that was on espn plus that top rank put on anyway he's a junior welterweight named adam azim who was just an explosive puncher uh super entertaining fighter uh good skills good team behind him um just just a guy that that you want to watch trained by shane mcguigan who's uh viewed by i think by many people as as the as the top trainer in the uk so that's one guy out of my whole group of uh, fighters that, that I'm interested in to watch, uh, you know, not a household name here in the United States yet, obviously, but again, young seven and zero, um, but exciting. And he's not the only one. There's, there's other guys. I mean uh, you know, I'm a big fan of watching Ray Moritaya from top rank. Also uh, a lightweight 16 and zero with 13. If you have ESPN plus you've seen him many times. He, I think he's been on regular ESPN uh, on an undercard a couple of times. Uh, he's a Robert Garcia trained fighter. Uh, very entertaining style, strong and a uh, good power, um, you know, still has to, has to smooth out the rough edges, I guess. Uh, sometimes he sort of fights down to his opposition level, but uh, looking very good out of Fontana, California. Um, we're taping this on, on, uh, on uh, Sunday, on Saturday night on the zone card in the co-feature was a, a, another, uh, coincidentally, all these guys I'm naming are like in that, you know, 35 to 40 pound weight division. This is a young lightweight named Floyd Schofield, who's 20 years old from Austin, Texas. He uh, caught the eye of uh, Golden Boy when he fought, not on a promotional contract, but they had done a fight in Texas when Virgil Ortiz fought last summer. Uh, they went to his people. They did a co-promotion deal with him. He had his debut for them uh, a few months ago, scored a first-round knockout, then was in the co-feature on the on the, uh, on the the Rocha card Saturday night. Got a good test from a veteran fighter, went to 10 rounds, but won you know, a shutout, got in those much-needed rounds, definitely a flashy, skillful guy. Uh, who's they've been jawing back and forth, him and Keyshawn Davis, uh, maybe building a future rivalry down the road for a big fight in that weight division. But yeah, you're right. I love the prospects. So I go through, I could sit here and talk about these guys all day, but uh, that's, I know you asked me for one. I had to give you like three and I had Schofield 15th on that list. Moritaya, I had 14th. Azim, I had uh, number nine. Uh, I'll throw one more out there just because I can. Uh, I'm a fan also, again, amazingly, another lightweight. And that's uh, a kid out of Fresno, California, 23 years old, Mark Castro. Uh, nine and zero with six knockouts. Had a had a, a really good amateur career. Actually, has uh, multiple wins against Keyshawn Davis as an amateur. Uh, he's with uh, Eddie Hearn, managed by Keith Connolly. Been on a number of Canelo Alvarez undercards. Canelo likes him. They have a nice relationship. So when Canelo was fighting, it felt like every week. Uh, back at the end of the year uh, last year, he was fighting on those cards. Um, you know, a very he has kind of an awkward, weird style, but comes to fight and uh, fun to watch and and. Uh, 
if you're a fan of lightweights and junior welterweights, there's a lot of young guys that are going to be in your wheelhouse because there's a tremendous amount of talent coming up in those two weight classes. Yeah. And if people subscribe to the Fight Freaks Unite newsletter, they would already know all these guys. They would know the whole list. They'd be able to read your descriptions of all these guys. How's that for an organic plug right there? I love it. Love it. Although then I ruined it by drawing attention to the fact that I was plugging it. But oh, well, there you go. All right. One more question for you. I want to get in on this whole Eric business of giving you ridiculous choices. Right. So for reasons that are presumably too convoluted. Why do you guys do this to me? (laughs) <laughs> We've got to do it to somebody, right? And right. You, we know that you'll still talk to us afterwards. We hope that you'll still talk to us afterwards. Um, so for reasons that are presumably too convoluted to get into here, you find yourself strapped into a chair with your eyelids forced open like Malcolm McDowell in A Clockwork Orange, and you're forced to watch the ugliest video imaginable. What in your mind is the worst possible scenario for you? Would it be Creator Clash 2 on Endless Loop? Would it be a constant broadcast of Dana White's Slap League? Is it a series of interviews of Adrian Bronner promising that he's back and ready to become champion? Or is it your New York Giants losing to Eric's Philadelphia Eagles? Well, I mean, that would be the worst, watching the Giants lose the Eagles. That's not even a hard question. That's not even, <laughs> okay. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather watch 24 hours of Broner's ridiculous interviews than watch the Giants lose <laughs> I actually thought where you were going with that question was like, what was the ugliest, uh, like if, I, if, if you were strapped in the chair and somebody was going to put on a video what would be the worst fight they could give? Oh, that's a good on? question, actually. Yes. Let's pretend I asked you that. <laughs> I was at what you were starting to ask. I actually started to, to search my memory banks and think of one. And the only thing I, I came up with is like the all-time worst fight I've ever seen. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I'll tell you why. This was an undercard fight at Madison Square Garden years ago. I want to tell you it was on a Shane Mosley, Miguel Cotto undercard, or maybe something along those lines, or Miguel Cotto versus Zav Judah, one of those big Cotto shows. And there was a fight between who I've actually become friendly with is Billy Dibb, the former featherweight title holder, mm-hmm. who, by the way, is uh, battling cancer right now. So shout out to him for his, uh, hopefully he can uh, come through it and recover. He's a, I've gotten to know him after his career. He's a really great guy. Any event, on that night, I wanted nothing to do with him because on that night he fought the journeyman Rogers Matagua. And uh, I've been to, I don't know, how, how many hundreds, maybe thousands of fights altogether in terms of cards I've been at and, you know, in terms of full cards and sat through. It's the only time in my entire career I was so pissed off watching that fight because Billy wouldn't go forward or do anything with the guy that he had under control. And Matago was just there to survive. And it was horrible, horrible, horrible. I literally got up out of my chair and I walked out of the arena just to go into the back <laughs> to wait the press section because I just, just couldn't watch that shit anymore. Uh, and that was one of the worst things I ever saw. So that if you want if you could find a video of that, you put that on and maybe an assortment of Rigando fights that would do it. In <laughs> Yeah, nice. there you go. Yeah, that was a much better answer to a much better question. There you go. We'll pretend <laughs> I asked that. <laughs> hey, Dan, look, thanks so much for uh, putting some time aside to come and join us. It's always a real pleasure. And a reminder to everybody out there, subscribe to Dan's Fight Freaks Unite newsletter. There's no reason not to. Exactly. DanRayfield.substack.com. Take you two seconds, put your email address in, and boom. There you go. Awesome. All right, brother. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so very much, Dan. All right, gents. I appreciate it. Great to talk to you guys. Hope to see you yeah. ringside in the not too distant future. Our thanks again to Dan, and it's an easy segue now from a chat with the sport's top news breaker to a look at this week's news. And the segment this week is all about fights being made. Uh, We begin with one that was announced just a little too late for last week's podcast. Uh, As we had mentioned, might happen a few weeks back. Tim Zhu, who had been scheduled to face Jermel Charlo until Charlo broke his hand, 
isn't just going to wait for Charlo to heal and will instead get into the ring with Tony Harrison. That fight will take place March 12th in Australia. Uh, another fight that has been in the works for a while has also been confirmed. We discussed this with Dan. Uh, David Benavidez will square off with Caleb Plant at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas on March 25th on Showtime Pay-Per-View. And we mentioned last week that this one was close. Now it's official. Jake Paul and Tommy Fury are going to try a third time to meet in the ring. Their contest is scheduled for February 26th in good old Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Uh, a few other fights of varying degrees of noteworthiness. Subriel Matias will face Jeremiah Ponce on Showtime Championship Boxing on February 25th in a 140-pound clash atop a three-fight card. Uh, one week earlier, 122-pounders Luis Neri and Azat Hovanesian will meet in a 12-rounder on DAZN. Adrian Broner's return to the ring is going about as smoothly as you'd expect. After Ivan Redkotch dropped out and was replaced by Hank Lundy, Lundy now also is out, and as of now, Broner will face one Michael Williams Jr., who has beaten two opponents with winning records and was recently seen being absolutely bludgeoned to defeat by John Bowser. Uh, and Floyd Mayweather will meet someone named Aaron Chalmers. Uh, according to the internet, he is a mixed martial artist and reality TV personality. That'll be an exhibition at the O2 Arena in London. Uh, Kieran, a lot to choose from here. Some major news, some minor news, some stupid news. Your thoughts? <laughs> um, boxing cards, sometimes they're like, as they say, they're like waiting for a bus, right? You wait and wait and wait and there's nothing. And then suddenly a bunch of them all come along <laughs> at once. Uh, that weekend of February 25th, 26th, uh, whatever your preference is in terms of quality of boxing, there's something for you. Uh, if you want nonsense, you have Bronner against Williams, which... As far as I can tell, even in Bronner's current state of disrepair, ought to be a horrendous mismatch. It should be. Um, and also should be. Yeah, but it is Bronner, who knows? And also Mayweather against Chalmers. Uh, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, he's, he's a MMA guy, Chalmers. He apparently competed in Bellator. He went 2-2 two two in Bellator. Um, he's also 1-0 in boxing. But yes, he's apparently best known in the UK for being on Geordie Shore, which is the Northeast England equivalent of Jersey Shore. Mm. Um, because he's 1-0 in boxing, he has said of facing Floyd that someone's O has got to go, which it doesn't because it's an <laughs> exhibition. And even if it did, it would be Chalmers, not Mayweather's. Um, part of me doesn't know why Floyd is continuing to engage in these nonsense bouts. And the other part of me is like, well, it's obvious he's getting paid stupid sums of money to box against people who are not going to pose any risk whatsoever. Plus, he gets lots and lots of attention. I mean, he likes that. Um, also, that weekend, if you want something that's a, actually a little bit of a step up from these embarrassing exhibitions or a Bronner Williams slaughter, but it's not quite actually real boxing, there's Fury versus Paul. And it is at least a Jake Paul contest in which he's facing a professional boxer although a pro boxer who arguably hasn't faced anybody any better than the people that jake ball has faced uh, but that weekend also has some actual real boxing and showtime has it and superior matias man he we've talked about him plenty of times before he he really is the goods um since suffering his one pro loss which i still suspect was probably at least in part a hangover from his opponent maxim dadashev dying Right, shortly yeah. after their fight, he's he's been on a roll since then. He's a fun fighter to watch. He's aggressive. He's skilled. I, I don't yet know much about uh, Jeremiah's Ponce, other than that he is undefeated at 30 and 0 with 20 KOs. But he does have a couple of decent names on his resume, including Lewis Ritson and um, Jamal James makes his return in the co-feature on that card. By the way, and we'll also see Elvis Rodriguez against Joseph Adorno. That's that's a good card, and obviously we'll talk about that as it gets closer. And as for Benavidez Plant and Sue Harrison. Yeah, look, we knew one was happening. We suspected another one was. They're both excellent matchups. Uh, full credit to Zoo 
for taking on a dangerous guy like Harrison instead of just kicking his heels uh, or taking an easy opponent waiting for Charlo to heal. And um, as Dan mentioned, uh, Benavidez's plan figures to be a fascinating clash of styles between two top super middleweights. And of course, we'll delve deeper into both of those when the time comes. All right. Time now for this week's edition of The Fight Game. And the world is still buzzing. <laughs> good breaking performance by yours truly. I mean, it's the third time we've mentioned it in this week's podcast. Like, you can tell us the most exciting thing that ever happened to either of us. Um, I, I don't know if the world is still buzzing, but you and I are at least buzzing. That much exactly. we know. We're, or we're going to get as much out of it as we possibly can. <laughs> yes. So anyway, um, so it's a lot of pressure on you to try, try and match my achievement. Um, but uh, I, I think this first clue should set you up pretty nicely if you're ready. (laughs) This fight took place in a ring between two people. (laughs) I did. I did. Yes, I just had to do that. But um, uh, in all seriousness, actually, I, I should I should just try and make a guess right now, just for the hell of it. But no, no, no. I I will wait for your actual first clue. All right, you, you can actually make a jot down what you would have guessed after on the basis of that. There is actually a chance you might get this on the first clue, and I think there's a pretty decent chance you'll get it in the first three. Um, anyway, here we go. The real first clue. This was the first fight of a trilogy with all three fights taking place in Las Vegas. Okay, chapter one of a trilogy, all three in Las Vegas. All right, so so I did jot down my totally random guess when I had nothing to go off of, and it, I know for a fact it is wrong. I was going to throw out there Kostizu and Zab Judah just because that's the first fight that crossed my mind for whatever <laughs> random okay. reason. Okay. Uh, okay, so fight one of a trilogy, they all took place in Las Vegas. Uh, immediately coming to mind are the likes of the Morales Barrera trilogy. I think those were all in Vegas. Um, because you said trilogy, I'll assume it's probably not a series that ended up with four fights, rather just three. Um, so, I mean, in terms of modern, okay, and then there's Bo Holyfield. I think those were all in Vegas. Uh, and then I wonder if there's something significantly older, something from the 70s. But uh, those are the first two that come to mind. And I guess I'm going to hate myself if it's one of them and I guess the wrong one. But let's just say Riddick Bowe of Vander Holyfield won. A very good guess, actually. But, but not the one. Okay. Not the one. And you'll know why it's not the one with the second clue. Okay. It was the only fight of the trilogy to go the distance. Ah. Okay, that is a helpful clue. That also crosses Brera Morales off the list. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the first fight went the distance. The next two ended in knockouts. So that, or or at least somehow ended without going sure. the full distance. Uh, um, so that also means that something like Carbajal and Gonzalez, which I don't even remember if they were all in Vegas, but I do know the first one ended in a knockout and then believe the other two both went the distance so that wouldn't be this all right so three fights all in vegas first one went the distance second and third did not Hmm. there's nothing jumping right to mind i'm kind of trying to like flip through some decades in my mind of uh is there something from the 90s uh, is there a heavyweight trilogy I'm not thinking of? Did 
Did all of the Fury Wilder fights take place in Vegas? Uh, that I cannot remember, but it's possible that all three were in Vegas. And since I got nothing better, I will say the fight is Fury Wilder 1. It isn't. I think the first one took place in LA, actually, Fury Wilder. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I think so. Possibly right. <clears throat> okay, so it's not that either. All right. I think you'll get it after this. Okay. Despite being comfortably ahead going into the 12th round, the winner, who is an orthodox fighter, switched to Southpaw and slugged it out. Uh, okay, then I do that. Now I know what it is. So <laughs> I brought up Eric Morales, but I had the yep. wrong trilogy. It is uh, yep. Morales Pacquiao one. And uh, yep, now now all the clues fall into place. And that was uh, just the right amount of detail to make it fairly obvious for me on the third clue. Yeah. And the other two were going to be increasingly obvious uh, after losing the first fight on points. The loser turned the rivalry around with a KO 10 and a KO three. And the final one, actually, which might not even be that much more obvious. Um, you, 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 don't, you didn't rhyme anything with anybody's names. or <laughs> Yeah, yes, it, it, it was Penny Macchiao against Eric <laughs> Morales. Um, both men have subsequently become involved in politics to different extents. Uh, obviously, we know about Manny, but Eric Morales is now also like a local politician. In, ah, that's in it. That's interesting. That Yeah, that's sort of an unorthodox fifth clue. That might have been like a that could have maybe been the fourth clue and then the fifth one was is the one yeah. where you spell out the exact result of each fight right. or something like that but either way i got it uh, on the third one i have not uh, equaled your iconic historic mark from last week but uh, but i still uh, a 3 a 3 is always respectable can't feel bad when you get it in 3 yeah, once you, exactly. Once you mentioned Morales early, I thought, yep, he is going to get it early. And then you were drifting farther and farther away. But... <laughs> yeah, I got hung up on heavyweights with my first two guesses. Oh, well. Yeah, and I think perhaps, especially because the third fight was such a one-sided blowout, I, I think, I, I wonder to what extent, really. It's not the most remembered trilogy that either of these guys really fought, is it? Right. I, like, it was overshadowed by Pacquiao's rivalry with Marquez and Morales' with Barrera a little bit. We almost forget that those those two guys had a trilogy. Yeah, that's a good point, that that they each had a more famous rivalry, uh, as good as this trilogy was, and because the third fight was a blowout, sometimes in your mind you don't even think of it as being a three-fight rivalry, or you kind of yeah. forget about that one. But I will say about the third fight, as brief as it was, it was spectacular fun while it lasted. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. was, uh, really, in, in their three fights, I don't think there was a dull moment at any point in any of the three. No, and it's interesting, like that second fight was also the point at which it all came together for Pacquiao, because I, I remember being ringside for that one, and I think, as I recall correctly, through about five, Morales was actually up, and and it was then that somehow Pacquiao just finally started using the right hand properly as well, and once, it was, you could almost see the light bulb finally go off, and it was after that midpoint of that fight that Manny Pacquiao turned into really Manny Pacquiao, I think. Yeah. Uh, all right, good one, good one. Oh, the fight game delivers once again. Uh, didn't make any history, but uh, had a good time, as I always do. That's that's the tagline for the podcast. We won't make any history, but we'll have a good time. <laughs> Listen, what more can people really ask for? I, I, exactly. If, if, if your podcast <laughs> listening guarantees you a good time, that's, that's right. a win, especially with what you're paying for this I podcast. <laughs> Precisely, yes. All right, uh, let's uh, let's conclude the show with the top five countdown. And uh, if ever there was a top five list that could only appear as our final segment rather than somewhere mid-show, it's this one. Uh, the, yes. the top five final round knockouts in boxing history. Uh, as you said last week, Karen, the internet was going to make my research on this easy. 
There was a YouTube video of the all-time great final round KOs in no particular order, and there were some articles listing or ranking them, and those were definitely helpful. Uh, but here, here's a spoiler slash tease. My number one was not on that YouTube video somehow, uh, and that's their screw-up, not mine. Uh, and my number five was not mentioned in any article or video that Ooh. I saw. Okay. Uh, so, so I think the lesson here is do your own research, people. Just like right. Aaron Rodgers says, do your own research. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, on to my countdown. Um, so I'm, I'm starting with one that is a personal choice. It, it is a deeply, deeply underappreciated, underrated fight that just happens to feature my all-time favorite fighter coming from behind to score a stoppage in the final round. So there's some bias here. You know, it wouldn't make most people's top fives, but it's my list, and it is a perfectly mm -hmm. worthy choice. If you've seen this fight, which everyone on the internet making lists of final round KOs apparently has not, uh, <laughs> and, and I actually think I know why they haven't, this fight is not on YouTube. I discovered. Uh, I, I didn't know that was possible for a fight that aired on national television to not be on YouTube, but somehow this one is not. I, I should probably say what the fight is at this point. I've teased it long enough. Uh, October 1st, 1999 in Salem, New Hampshire on ESPN2 Friday Night Fights, Mickey Ward, KO10, Reggie Green. Uh, I don't know how this is not on YouTube. For the love of God, one of you people out there with a YouTube account, upload this damn fight. Uh, anyway, it was one of the very best fights ever aired on the Friday Night Fight series, although it got overshadowed and lost to history somewhat by the fact that Ward had the fight of the year on that series against Emmanuel Augustus two years later. So Ward Green got kind of forgotten, but it was an extraordinary dramatic fight. Mickey went down early. If memory serves, it was in round three he got dropped. He had a nasty cut in his lower lip. It was basically like a hole that you could stick a finger through. Uh, he was behind. Uh, the scoring can't be found anywhere on the internet, uh, but uh, it was probably two or three points behind entering the 10th and final round. And he just wouldn't stop coming. Hurt Green to the body. Green's legs were gone. He was still on his feet, but taking punishment, and the ref stopped it at 2.40 of the 10th and final round. 20 seconds left. Helped propel Mickey's late career run. He followed it with the win over Shea Neary in his next fight. He doesn't get that shot without this KO. Maybe the Gaddy fights never happen, etc. I promise I won't be as long-winded about the rest of the picks on my list, but uh, that is my number five, Kieran. So I've got to be honest, not only did I not even consider that with I don't know that I've ever even seen that fight. I mean, the description sounds like a Mickey Ward fight, right? right. It's, it's, <laughs> yes. he, was, he, he was behind, he got hurt, he got dropped, he came back, knocked the guy out. I'm not sure that I saw a Mickey Ward fight before the Shane Neary fight. So, I mean, I might have done. I just don't remember this fight specifically at all. So there you go. You learn something. You learn something as well as having fun and Indeed. not making history on the podcast. <laughs> And and I would love to be able to tell you that well uh, if you haven't seen it go watch it on YouTube but uh, I can't I can't uh, instruct you to do that so uh, if you haven't seen it call Dan Raphael he <laughs> oh, surely has it on tape somewhere he can send you a copy yes yes <laughs> uh, all right uh, at number four I have a fight uh, more likely to pop up in the average modern fight fans top five it's newly minted Hall of Famer Carl Frotch KO12 Jermaine Taylor. On a little network called Showtime. Uh, April 25th, 2009, Foxwoods. Frotch was undefeated, but not at all well known yet in the US. Taylor had just the two losses to Kelly Pavlik. Taylor dropped Frotch in the third round. Good back and forth fight. And entering the 12th, 
Frotch is up by four points on one card, but down by four on the other two. So he needs the knockout to win. The 12th round was spectacular, filled with drama. Frotch hurting Taylor. Taylor staying up. Al Bernstein on the call saying Frotch at least needs a knockdown or two. And surely Taylor wins if he stays on his feet, which Taylor did until Frotch finally dropped him with 45 seconds left. Taylor's badly hurt, slumped in the corner. He just beats the count up at nine. Now there's less than 30 seconds to go. Frotch pursues him, pins him against the ropes, and gets him out on his feet, forcing the stoppage with 14 seconds on the clock. An amazing finish, and one that really shaped the career trajectories of both men. Uh, The winner became a Hall of Famer. The loser was never quite the same. Yeah, yeah, I had this on my list. I had it at number three. Um, Yeah, just tremendous. Tremendous, not only just in in the the drama of the ending but like you said what it meant for both men and how it completely altered the career trajectories of both and how really it was what helped launch Carl Frotch into becoming a pretty big big star over here as well as in the UK and yeah really sort of elevated him up so a lot at stake uh that's the classic case of Frotch needing to lay it all out on the line and doing it yeah all right so my choice for number three may surprise you because I assume it's the fight you were hinting at last week when you said that number yeah, one probably. may be easy and obvious. What Was Chavez-Taylor the fight you were thinking yeah, of? absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's my number three. I, I don't need to recap the details of this fight as much as the sure. others. Everybody knows it. Uh, March 17th, 1990, Battle of Unbeatens, huge fight. Living legend Chavez falls way behind but is coming on in the later round. Needs a KO in the 12th. Drops Taylor with... Just a little over 15 seconds to go. Taylor gets up at the count of five. Referee Richard Steele looks in his eyes for a second and decides to stop it. Officially, there were two seconds left to go in the fight. Uh, Although if the TV clock is to be believed, there were five seconds when he waved it off, which would make the stoppage more justifiable. Uh, But in the opinion of most, not all, but most, this was an incorrect stoppage. A great majority of people believe Steele made the wrong call. And that's why, while it is as dramatic a finish as you will ever see, I can't put it at number one. My my, okay. my top two are both final round knockouts. This was a final round TKO that maybe, arguably, shouldn't have been. So for me, Chavez Taylor is number three. Gotcha. I like the uh, I like the reasoning there. I like I'm liking this list very much so far, okay. actually. So um, my favorite part of the whole thing still remains Jim Lampley's pressure. You're gonna see Lou Duva go absolutely <laughs> crazy now. Yeah. <laughs> so I so that was your number one then. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So I had a tough time deciding between my top two, uh, which should be number one and which should be number two. There's a valid case either way. Uh, But for me, number two, I'm going way back to September 13th, 1950, the 1950 fight of the year. Jake LaMotta, KO15, Laurent Dautil. LaMotta waited his whole career to become middleweight champ. He did so in 1949 and in his first defense of the world title. And and it gets a little confusing because he did make a defense of the title recognized by the New York Commission against Tiberio Mitri, but that wasn't for the recognized world title. Mm, So yeah, you know, sanctioning bodies have been making a mess of things for a long time. (laughs) But so anyway, this is officially his first world title defense and the Bronx Bull was blowing it. Uh, He was losing by two, four and eight points entering the 15th. He needed a knockout to save his title reign and he gave it all he had and hurt the twill in the final minute and kept coming and dropped him along the ropes with just over 20 seconds to go. 
and Dottil just barely failed to beat the count, and that was that. 13 seconds left on the clock. Lamada saves his championship reign in the most dramatic fashion possible. It was my number two as well. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those fights that that perhaps you know, with several generations having gone past ever since, and with Dottil not being not lasting very well in memory, um, that that might have actually gotten a little bit forgotten. But when you think about the significance of it, yeah, it's clearly up there. Okay. Um, so before I say what my number one pick is, and and don't say it, but do you know what I've what you haven't heard yet that would seem likely to be on one's list and has a shot at being number one? I can tell you what the. <laughs> There right, are a well, couple right. on my list that I all right I, I all right well we'll, we'll we'll double back then and and you'll let me okay. know whether this is a surprise to you or something you didn't think of or it's just a couple notches lower but um my number one pick was was also a first title defense uh, unlike Lamada's this one didn't go the champ's way uh, I don't know how this wasn't part of the YouTube video showing the greatest final round KOs. Uh, but uh, alas, they screwed up because I think it's the greatest final round KO of all time. March 31st, 1980, Mike yeah. Weaver, KO 15, Big John Tate. Um, Tate was an undefeated rising American heavyweight star. He wasn't the champ, but he was a heavyweight belt holder, having decisioned in 1979, Jerry Kutsia, whom we just recently eulogized. Uh, first defense in his hometown of Knoxville, Tennessee, they picked a safe opponent. Mike Weaver, who had a record of 21 wins, nine losses. Easy enough. It wasn't an easy fight, though. It was tough and close, but Tate was clearly ahead entering the final round. Two judges had him up by three points. One had him up by five. He just needed to stay on his feet to improve to 21-0 and maybe set himself up for a big payday against the used-up Muhammad Ali. Uh, that was being seriously discussed. He just needed the win over Weaver. But in the final minute, from absolutely out of nowhere, they come out of a clinch and Weaver lands a left hook and Tate falls flat on his face, doesn't budge while the 10 count is administered. Weaver takes the belt and Tate never really recovers. Uh, his career and his life are, are something of a tragedy, really. But this was the ultimate f final round KO. Come from behind. Weaver needed the knockout to win. One punch. Boom. Shocking upset. A heavyweight title changes hands. Yeah, this was the one I, mean, I felt that four fights kind of separated themselves from the rest and i had uh -huh. a little bit of trouble finding the fifth and i was, and and you've mentioned them all the, the okay. one in your list that i didn't have was the one i didn't even know existed <laughs> right. um uh a lot of them were sort of where, where would you place them i put weaver tate up four um but could easily move it up up or down if i remember correctly and i, I can't remember who was in weaver's corner but didn't they basically say, go out there and knock him out and don't come back until you have or something to that effect? <laughs> Did they? I didn't it was actually. Basically like you could... It was something like that. I yeah, think. I didn't. I didn't listen to the corner instructions before the fifteenth in, in rewatching it. So, uh, so that could be right. I, I, I can't. I can neither confirm nor deny. Yeah, and that's where you got. Yeah, he was brought in as a soft touch. That's what happens, you know. That's what happens when you bring in the soft touches. Sometimes yeah. uh, it all goes horribly wrong, and it, yeah, it, it definitely went horribly wrong. And then, uh, and then we were promptly, uh, promptly lost. But uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, but yeah, so that was number four on my list. No complaints with uh, with putting putting it right at the top there. Okay, and so I'm guessing that your five is going to be one of my couple of honorable mentions here. Um, there, there were a few that were on other people's lists or in the YouTube video that 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 didn't quite seem to to 
deserve even a mention for me. But there, but there are two that I considered for that fifth spot. Um, one of them is Shannon Briggs, Sergey Lyakovich. Mm-hmm. Um, I had sort of forgotten about this one, but you know, it was a miserable fight for 11 rounds, but a remarkable finish with Briggs scoring the knock him onto the scorer's table knockout with just a few seconds mm-hmm. remaining after entering the final round, trailing by one, three, and three points. And the other one I considered was Mosley Mayorga. Uh, Mosley was up by five points and one point and then down by one point on the third card. So he didn't need the knockout, but he did need to win the round and he needed the knockout to salvage what otherwise would have been considered a, a slightly lackluster performance. And of course, he flattened Mayorga with one second left on the clock. Right. Larry Merchant declared his love for him, and the rest is history. <laughs> and probably number eight for me would be James Tony KO12 Prince Charles Williams, just because it was such an awesome knockout. Uh, but Tony was ahead closely on all three cards, which takes out a lot of the drama. Um, and th- there are uh, two that I want to mention that don't qualify. Um, they're they're the almosts. Um, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. versus Sergio Martinez almost pulled it off and if he had oh, yeah. yep. if he had gotten that knockout it would be in the top five for sure and yeah. then uh, Arturo Gaddy's first fight with Ivan Robinson Gaddy was behind through nine and then had Robinson out on his feet for a moment in the final minute but couldn't quite finish him off great drama one more big punch lands and that fight probably makes my list uh, so was was one of the ones I mentioned your number five uh, no, they were all there. Really, sort of, there wasn't much distinction between my number five and my sort of highly commended kind of uh, uh, lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had mostly Mayorga. I had Tony Williams. I had Briggs Lajkovic. I put at number five, and, and I put it there with a grimace because of the subsequent consequences. Uh, was, I know what it's going to be. Yep. Yeah, it was Chris Eubank, Michael Watson too. And I sort of put it there and I thought, uh, I feel bad for putting this here um, because of what happened subsequently. Um, I also put the rematch with Audley Harrison and Michael Sprott, a completely meaningless fight for most people. Well, it was for the European Heavyweight Championship, but um, Audley Harrison was way behind on point. I think he'd messed up. He was fighting as a southpaw he, because he'd messed up his his right shoulder and used his his left hand to knock out Michael Sprott in the in the final round. I put that one in there, but nothing really leapt out of me. Perhaps if I'd been aware of the existence of more fights like you were, <laughs> I would have come up with something else. But yeah, for me, it was very much a case of four obvious ones, and then the rest. There were reasons against all of them, like you said, Tony was ahead against Williams, Mosey was ahead against Mayorga, yeah. Briggs Lajkovic was just horrid. <laughs> right. um, you know, so there were all those reasons against them. Um, and I was almost a little bit surprised, actually, that I could only think of four absolute real slam dunks in the whole history of, of, of boxing. But um, to go on that list, I, I did think it would be a bit more difficult weeding through them all. But um, yeah, once again, we're... Not entirely dissimilar with our no, choices. No, but but we had them those top four in a in a distinctly different order, which is always yes. kind of nice when that happens. And uh, and I will I will close this segment with one final plea. One of you people who knows your way around the internet has yeah. a YouTube account. Get your hands on uh, Mickey Ward, Reggie Green, and and upload it, please, and uh, send me a message. Let me know it's there so I can uh, spend lots of time promoting it and watching it. Lee Groves feels like another one, but he's got it on a dusty VHS somewhere. He, he must have it. I mean, it aired on ESPN Friday Night Fights. It's uh, it's the, copies must exist with anyone who collects all the fights that air. 
Uh, so yeah, Lee Groves is a perfect candidate to have it. I don't know whether he uploads fights to YouTube, but uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make a personal plea to him to uh, yeah, write, write this horrendous wrong. <laughs> exactly. Or even just you know send you a VHS so you have to go back out and buy a secondhand VHS player. I, I still I still have a VCR. It's it oh, you do. Right. it sits near a TV unhooked up. <laughs> <laughs> and and we are at that point in society where the effort of spinning a little coaxial cable and hooking it up is right. is too much for me to ever actually hook it up. But I do have one. So okay, all right. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, and thanks to Dan Rayfield for joining us as well. Uh, we should have done his interview later so we could ask him to to do all of this for us. And <laughs> yes. We'll put it. We'll we'll follow up with an email. Yeah. To him. So there you go. All right. We will be back next week. We will be previewing. Ray Vargas against Ushaki Foster and the rest of that Showtime Championship Boxing triple header. Till then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.